The letters in the mental brief do two things incredibly well. One, they're a, a historical artifact that give us a window into a particular time and place. Jewish immigrants in the early 20th century New York. But really, they also tell a much more universal story of newcomers working on issues of acculturation and integration and balancing traditions that they came with with their lives in the new world. Very, very powerful. So very particular, but also quite universal stories of the human experience. A bento brief symbolizes, to me, connection and community. Just thinking about how many people were reading the forward and the popularity of this advice column for so many years makes me think about how essential it was for people to be able to reach out to one another through Abraham Kahan and share in each other's ups and downs as they navigated a new and changing world. A Binto Brief is such a strong example of what we can learn from history and other people's similar struggles in the past about current questions related to modernity and changing culture in an ever-changing world today. I'm a huge fan of the Binto Brief. If you want to understand your place in this world today and understand some of the conflicts and some of the issues that impact families all you need to do is read the letters from the Bintel Brief. The Bintel Brief is full of stories that just illuminate, bring to life the realities that plagued those who came over at the turn of the 20th century from Eastern Europe and other places. Issues around religion and modernity and challenges of wanting to be different from your family and responsibility towards those who came before you. Issues around refugees and settlement and making a new life in a new place. It's a story about integration and assimilation. And we have so much to learn from this unbelievable resource. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find Joy in Conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. One of my favorite sensations is the surge of intellectual and emotional awakening, but also confusion that I experience when encountering something totally new for the first time. It can be a new genre or an untold story, maybe an intellectual current that has shaped lives and formed communities, but isn't widely appreciated by a general audience. That sensation of being stunned and enamored by an entire cultural or intellectual world a world that was fully formed and multifaceted long before I ever encountered it? Well, for me, that can be dazzling, but also dizzying. It can be overwhelming, yet quite satisfying, to find myself wrapped up in, enveloped in these worlds. A few years ago, when a friend turned me on to the art of Jacob Lawrence, I tumbled deep into stories that I wasn't taught in school. And through them... I had my eyes opened to an entire realm of talent and expressiveness, one that's left an indelible mark on America's visual art scene, yet also one that somehow managed to remain unknown to me until this moment. It wasn't just texture and color, sharp angles and geometric forms that Lawrence played with on his canvas that I found so gripping. Through Lawrence, I was confronted with an entirely new way of telling American history. This Harlem Renaissance artist told the story of the great migration of African Americans during the 20th century through 60 different panels, 
60 different paintings, each depicting scenes of people and their emotions, people who endured the oppression of sharecropping and the material deprivation of life in the Jim Crow South. Yet Lawrence also managed to represent the humanity of people who migrated north, people who were transported not only by railroads, but by a determination to evade racism and find economic opportunity. Whether it was a painting depicting emaciated children picking cotton in fields rather than attending school, or another panel featuring throngs of people boarding trains to Chicago, New York, or St. Louis, Jacob Lawrence told the story of migration, of the bittersweet blend of hope and despair. Lawrence was my first point of contact with the story of the Great Migration, as represented through the wants and desires, the tribulations and tenacity of African Americans. After Lawrence, I'd go on to read Langston Hughes's poem about this Great Migration, titled One Way Ticket. The lines from this poem still reverberate with me today. I pick up my life and take it with me, and I put it down in any place that is north and east and not Dixie. I am fed up and afraid. I pick up my life and take it away on a one-way ticket. Through Lawrence and Langston, I gleaned artists' accounts of what compel people to risk it all get up and move. But it wasn't until I started looking at old copies of the African-American newspaper, the Chicago Defender, that I understood what it meant, not only to move, but to form community, a community forged among the displaced. I read articles written to help the newly arrived migrants find churches and apartments, advice columns that described ways to navigate new urban spaces, These articles offered a roadmap for the newly arrived, the historically traumatized, those who were distinctly determined to find a place that they could call home, a place where they could scratch out a living that was better than what they had known and where they had come from before. And at the heart of it all was a newspaper, the printed page. It was a lifeline to those in need. Columnists offered modern prophecies and revelations, guiding readers through the wilderness of urban life in unknown cities. This story of movement and resettlement, of a people suffering yet channeling all their collective hope as they arrive in a new land, one of forging ahead with the help of newspapers to mitigate fears, well, this reverberates well beyond the story of the Great Migration. It has echoes with the migration of Yiddish-speaking Jews from Eastern Europe and the role played by the advice column, a brief, in the Forward, a Yiddish daily newspaper. As much as I love encountering new ideas, it's also a joyous occasion when someone radiates genuine excitement when they get to share something that they love. I enjoyed such an occasion a few years ago when my colleague and friend Adam Strom brought a bintel brief into my life. It was like he was leading me to a buried treasure. A gentle and generous teacher, Adam led me to this trove of letters 
this bundle of questions posed by generations of Yiddish-speaking Jews to the Jewish Daily Forward. For all of the grainy black-and-white photos of the Lower East Side that I had seen in books and museums, I had never really known these people. I had never really known what they cared about and what was on their mind. Yet reading the letters sent to the forward by its readers, people who were asking for advice and looking for an answer, those who were pleading with someone to help them find their way, I was able to see past the gauzy veil of an overly simplified past and tap into a vein of emotion, emotions experienced by these migrants, these new arrivals, these assimilating and transforming people, trying to figure out where they had come from and where it was that they had arrived, and why life was more complicated than walking down streets paved with gold and finding health, wealth, and happiness. I even saw myself in these letters, questions of religious practice and observance, of interfaith marriage, questions of responsibilities to parents and community. I saw my mother and her parents, and the New York that was described to me again and again throughout my childhood. But I also saw parallels to what was found in the Chicago Defender, that African-American newspaper read by a different group of migrants. Both papers offered advice. Both papers were littered with questions, insecurities, aspirations. They were both about building community through support, especially during moments of vulnerability for the readers and the writers. As much as a Bintel brief shined a light on a particularly Jewish experience, its similarities with the writings found in the Chicago Defender made me realize just how universal these longings and aspirations are. It made me realize how many people can feel lost, how many are seeking answers and reaching out into the unknown, scribbling down a note and casting it out into the world with a prayer for a better future. And when something is universal, it also tends to be perennial. A Bintel brief may have initially appeared in the pages of the forward at the turn of the 20th century, but every generation has its questions, and every generation is shaken by the tides of change. Everyone experiences doubt. Everyone has desires for a better life. So when I learned that the forward was updating a Bintel brief for the 21st century, for the digital age, I needed to know more. No longer confined to the pages of a Yiddish daily newspaper, a Bindle brief has been transformed into a podcast. Like the proverbial greenhorns trying to find their way in America, a Bindle brief has taken a new shape to answer the questions that linger and the ones that remain with all of us today. So I wanted to know more. I wanted to know what it means to offer advice. I had so many questions. I wanted answers to questions like, what is it that's particularly Jewish about a Bintel brief? What type of emotional intelligence does it take to be in a position to respond to a letter? And how does this newest iteration, this digital age production, this podcast, how does it connect to the legacy of a Bintel brief? The one I encountered as a text in the archives, as a bundle of letters to be read rather than heard. So I set out to answer these questions 
by speaking with the sage members of Abintal Brief's team. What ensued was a conversation with Gina Green and Lynn Harris, Abintal Brief's co-hosts, who shared what it's like for them to inherit this mantle. We were joined in our conversation by Hannah Pollock, the Forwards Archivist, who helped connect this version of a Bintel Brief to its origins as an advice column in the Yiddish press. Our conversation was fun and energetic, and it was a testament to the shared love of learning and listening that we all brought into it. So let's turn to this conversation and learn more about just what it is that's found in today's bundle of letters and how it speaks to questions of Jewishness and humanness today. Yella, let's learn together. I'm Gina Green. I like to call myself South Carolina born, raised, and returned. I'm Hannah Pollock, and I'm the Forwards Archivist. And I'm also a Yiddish translator with my wife. I'm Lynn Harris. And I live in Brooklyn, but I'm from Boston. And my background is in journalism and comedy and advocacy. I really want to start with emotional intelligence. What's so embedded in the show is the compassion, the sensitivity to perspective, the emotional intelligence that you have to have. So I'm curious, how did you cultivate that? And how is it that you try to channel that emotional intelligence when you're presented with a letter and you're trying to respond in a way that is meeting somebody else's needs, but also brings who you are into the conversation? I think that emotional intelligence is kind of a fancy word for compassion or kind of a fancy word for just seeing and treating everyone else as a human being doesn't mean you have to like them. Doesn't mean you have to approve of their every action or choice. Doesn't mean you can't find them loathsome. But I think that just to be able to walk a mile in someone else's letter, you know, and just think of where are they coming from? What are they really asking? We do a lot of text-based analysis, but we also kind of do a lot of reading between the lines. I kind of think that's the same as emotional intelligence. It doesn't mean that you're going to be correct about your assumptions about what the person means, but at least you're thinking, okay, respectfully, this is a human being and they have needs, wants, and questions. And what are they? And let's see if we can take them at face value. I would just add on to that, that I feel like Another way to think about emotional intelligence is sort of how we use our senses and what are the senses that are in play when we are having these conversations and answering these questions. And I think a lot about hearing, seeing, and feeling. I feel like part of being able to give good advice is just having an ability to hear all voices and be able to see sometimes two or three steps into the future. Also being able to actually feel that empathy. And I think being able to feel a range of emotions and appreciate what that impact might be on others and how others might hold those emotions is really, really important. Being able to go through a process is almost more important than the advice itself. You have at your disposal a letter, one point of contact with somebody who's presenting you quandary, a question, a complaint, or an issue, but there isn't necessarily, from my understanding of the process, 
a dialogue, an ongoing back and forth. You don't get to clarify or ask follow-up questions. The specificity offered in the letter is what you have to work with. I really would love to know what is the process for the two of you as you're trying to tease out what's at play here? What's the subtext? What is it that this person wants perhaps as a resolution or as somebody to just know that they exist and that their issue is real and they want catharsis? What is that process like when you can't be in dialogue the way we are now? I'll say it's really hard. And every time we answer a question, like, man, I wish this person were here. I wish that we could call them and bring them on and ask them follow-up questions because not only are we limited by the text that we receive, but the text itself is limited by the person who's giving it to us. We are only getting that piece of the story. We're only getting that person's analysis and assessment of the data at hand. And we're only getting that little sliver. For someone like me who brings sort of a political intelligence to giving advice, meaning like I'm trying to game everything out and I'm trying to look three steps ahead and I'm trying to do all of these things. I want more information. I want to get input from all of the other parties that are a party to the question and we can't. And so I think that Lynn and I sometimes end up playing the roles of other people party to the situation. I think being able to hold not just that person's emotions, but everyone else who might be involved in the quandary. And I think you can also look at it from the opposite perspective. In other words, you know, the letter is all we have. On the one hand, you do want to, and we do try to fill in those blanks and, and imagine what the answers to the questions are that are raised by the letter. On the other hand, it's a complete piece of work in and of itself, just as is. There's a reason why they wrote it that way that they may not even be aware of, but it is its own perfect primary source document. Hannah, you're drawing from the archives. So because the podcast is its own 2.0 version of the longstanding column. For you, as you're reading the questions that people are posing in the 21st century, what kind of echoes from the past are you seeing based on what it is that you've read in the Yiddish versions, in the archives? Thinking about those echoes, can you share a little bit about the history of the Bintel Brief? How did it come to be? And you know, why see it in this new iteration? In 1906 was the first uh, Bintel Brief was published, and it's a story of a tenement building. A woman writes in that her neighbor has stolen a watch, and the watch is now at the pawn shop. And so she wants to confront the neighbor, but she doesn't exactly know what to do. And the response is really an example of restorative justice. It's like, how does a community provide justice today for its members within a larger world, right? How do we do that? So their answer was really interesting. It really was about, you know, get the neighbor, talk to her, right? It was like how to talk to each other and sort of resolve things. I think the other thing I wanted to say that folks don't sometimes realize is that the Bintel actually ran in the forward all the way till the early 80s, I think maybe 84. And it clearly had several different writers at that point. And one of them was Isaac Metzger. He was sort of the last individual known to have had that post. So over the years, for example, Montreal had a famous Yiddish community, and they had a vibrant Yiddish theater. One of the main directors of that Yiddish theater, Dora Wasserman, 
she was a direct descendant from Shlomo Micholz, the Moscow Art Yiddish Theater. So she ends up in Montreal, and one of her long-running plays was The Bental Briefs. Liana Fink, right, cartoonist, a lot of us know her from The New Yorker. She did a graphic novel based on The Bental Briefs. And then in Yiddish film, I would say there's a famous uh, Yiddish film called Brivale de Mama. Oh, and the screenplay was actually written by one of the people who was answering The Bental Briefs in the 30s and 40s. His name was Moshe Osharovitz. You gave that great example of the the pawn shop, the watch, and restorative justice. Based on the the questions and the letters that are coming in today, like what issues, what concerns from the early years of the 20th century are we seeing as perennial questions? And then what also is kind of novel or emerging in the questions people are asking that perhaps this is the first time that a Bintel brief has had to grapple with. I do see it as like a rainbow. It reflects everything that's going on in society, everything that's happening to the Jewish community in particular, right? And you can kind of see an arc, like things in the very beginning, 1910s, 1920s, are much, much more about like, how do I integrate my Jewish identity into whatever's going on in my life? You know, America coming at me, right? How do I do that? And then 30s, 40s, 50s, it's more about the next generation becomes a topic that's frequently, you know, involved. And I think we see that today. I think that's a lot of the questions coming in, intergenerational, my kids, my parents, right? That way, it's sort of the mm-hmm. question to going generation up and generation down. And then in the 60s and 70s are really like, I'm really enjoying them so much. They're really about like, okay, we're settled now, kind of, right? We're, we're fairly confident in our American Jewish identity-ish. And like Israel becomes a theme. I think we get a lot of those today. But I would definitely say that the arc is sort of, as you watch the development of the evolution of the history of the American Jewish community, is kind of... It, it sort of mimics it, right? Because really, ultimately, the forward is considered the address for the Jewish people. They're building on East Broadway. Historically, it was open 24-7. And that's sort of the genesis of how they came to have all these issues kind of literally deposited at their doorstep. Mm. We provided that for the community. And in a way, you could say, you know, they're not walking in the door technically, but digitally, they're, they're definitely ringing the bell. I feel like every question that we have come across so far has been about health, healthcare in the era of a pandemic. And it has been about friends and it's been about mothers and sisters and brothers. Everything has relationships at its core. These questions are so universal and through them, we're able to widen the aperture from like a Jewish question to sort of a human universal scenario every single time. Hannah mentioned community a number of times, and you're talking about, Gina, relationships. So I really am curious, how are the two of you thinking about community, the communities that you identify with and that you want people to see as relevant for the forward, for its audience, for those who perhaps are identifying as Jewish, are Jewish adjacent, are Jewish curious? are simply just enthralled by the idea of listening to people dole out advice. What does community mean for you? And what does it mean in terms of how we can conceptualize an expansive and inclusive Jewish identity? I think for me, community means being able to both provide and receive strength, love, 
resiliency, support, and that when you're able to both deliver that and accept it in a place where you can be exactly who you are, then that's community. And I do think that there is, for me, a Black Jewish Southern woman coming into this role, into a role that, like, I imagine that (laughs) a Bental Briefs readers 50 years ago would have never imagined me answering these questions. And there are probably readers today (laughs) and listeners today who can't imagine me answering these questions. And yet it is imperative, I think, that we as a Jewish community are able to recognize who we all are in our totality and that we are all able to be whoever that is in all of the Jewish spaces that we create. That seems really, really important to me. And I also feel like the non-Jewish community also would benefit from understanding and seeing and knowing us as Jewish people as being more diverse than images on popular culture would have you believe. You reminded me of something that has only recently begun to crystallize for me about what the podcast could mean in terms of how how sort of Jews show up for others or Jews show up to others. And you alluded to this, I think, which is that, you know, if the column had remained only a column, then probably not that many non-Jews would go find it and read it. They can find a different advice column. But there's something about it. There are so few visible mainstream kind of pop culture, mass culture representations of broadly defined liberal Jews. And so I really think the podcast is an opportunity for us to sort of be discovered by mm-hmm. folks who didn't know that they had preconceived notions, but who might then think, oh, this is a pretty similar to the conversation that I would have, but I hear where they're bringing in Jewish values and Yiddish, and this is a whole new representation of Jews that I, that I haven't had before. I think that's a really important aspect of what we're able to do, specifically because it's a podcast. We're a Jewish podcast, but we're not just for Jews. The opening kind of few moments of each show, it talks about how humans have been asking for advice for as long as there have been humans or people. You don't say Yiddish speakers or Jews or (laughs) people from the shtetl or people who are waiting in line to get their whitefish and capers are asking for advice. It is a much more expansive sense. And it seems to me like it's very welcoming. And it's not saying here are the boundaries for whom this podcast belongs. You are not our narrow audience, but it's a very porous, boundary-free audience. Right. Our Jewishness is more of a lens that Mm -hmm. we put over our answering of the question and our consideration of the question and really informs how we answer the question. So That's right. My father is Catholic. I am the child of an interfaith uh, household. I am in an interfaith marriage. I can go days or weeks wandering around Massachusetts without encountering anybody who identifies as Jewish. So for me, I oftentimes have to explain like what a Jewish lens is. So what does it mean to have a Jewish lens? And then also, what does it mean to try to take that lens, apply it, but also universalize the experience of answering questions for people. It's not like, oh, when we apply the value of kindness, that's a uniquely Jewish value. It's not. But when we're applying it, partly because it's for us part of the Jewish lens. 
But for us, if I may speak for both of us, there, we Always. have those lenses. Those lenses are, were sort of forged from our Judaism. And I think that when we talk about some of those values, you know, like we'll mention stories from Torah. Or, you know, we'll be like Abraham and Sarah, right? They were the exemplars of kindness. I also think we have sort of a, a Talmudic approach. When we're going through the questions, we're like looking at the words and moving things around and like really doing some analysis sometimes. But it goes back to what you were saying earlier that part of the reason why we're doing it is because this is all we have. That's the primary source. And so we've got to dig in as deep as we can to what we've got. Hannah, you know, I've heard in some of these responses talk of intersectional identities, complex identities, pushing back on the sense of a singular or finite definition of what it means to be Jewish. As you go through the archives and you're seeing some of those different, you know, collisions of facets of identity, what are you seeing from 1906 onwards? Where is gender, class, you know, different notions of secularism versus religiosity coming out and and what people are presenting as their questions as Jews in Yiddish to a Jewish paper? Well, two things. One, in 26, I think it was just a little past our 30th anniversary. What is it, like two decades since they started it? And already they're celebrating the column. And the way they describe it is they say that the, the enthusiasm that people have for the mental brief is analogous to the same enthusiasm and passion for life itself. And that it's, it's as ample and as porous as life is, is the mental brief. And the, the other thing is that they like to view the mental brief as an enchanted mirror that's focusing. It's like, you know, one crystallized moment, but you know, yielding all this phenomena, they called it, down to one moment where everything seems clear and bright and, and we're moved by it, right? A lot of times people think that the Bintel was like this kind of, you know, porous sieve or container for everything that was going on in the world. Now we're going to see it reflected, right? So just because somebody's writing in, you know, the 50s or the 60s, they're not writing in about civil rights or they didn't put those letters in, I don't know, or, or gay rights, like none of that really comes up. But that said, there is a lot on uh, gender. You can see kind of the, the movement of time from, you know, quote unquote, the shop girl writing in, my boss is harassing me. We've definitely mm-hmm. had those kind of letters. Or I want to get an education, but I am responsible for supporting my family also from a young girl. And my mother, you know, counts on me. I can't tell her I want to go to school. She doesn't want me to go. And then, you know, I would say the arc on that one that I've seen is, I think it was a letter from the 70s where a writer wrote in and said, I'm, I'm an immigrant and I love to pray at a traditional synagogue. I like to go there. I like to hear Yiddish. It reminds me of the old country. I'm comfortable there. My wife wants to go to an egalitarian synagogue for the high holidays. What am I going to do? I don't like it there. It doesn't feel comfortable to me. I feel like I I have no connection to what's going on in the service. And what I understand is really, you know, important for her. And, you know, they came to some Solomonic quasi, you know, answer of like, well, you know, you got it. You can have two separate shows. That doesn't mean divorce. But maybe once in a while you can like go and sit with your wife. She's just saying that, you know, she wants to be with you at this very intimate moment of prayer, you know, and feeling very Jewish, she wants to be with you. You know, they're aware of what's going on in the world, but that's not always exactly reflected, you know, in the letters or in the variety of identities. 
Something else that I think I'm really enjoying is the sense that it's challenging my notion of like the emotions that you'll experience when reading advice columns. When I think of advice, I think of somebody who's going through an issue, experiencing something that might be painful with anxiety or uncertainty. But as I hear everybody talking, I'm tuning into the fact that there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of celebration, there's hope and optimism as well. So I'm curious, what are you all bringing to the podcast to ensure that your joy, your optimism, your love of being Jewish, how are you bringing all of that into your work and also finding it in the letters? Because there is, there is a hope for change. There is a sense that the future can be different and I just need a way. They're asking us the question because something happening right now doesn't feel kosher, right? I mean, and they want something to change and be different about that relationship, that job. Part of the ability to do this is just to be someone who actually has a range of emotions that are accessible to them. Like I think Lynn and I both are able to feel that range and it makes it easy to bring it into the conversation. I think part of the reason why we do what we do well is because we're both able to tap into that humanness of being mm-hmm. human with a range of emotions and challenges that come with it. What have you learned about yourself in being part of a mental brief? What have you discovered that perhaps can change your future? I don't know that I've learned this about myself, but I've certainly confirmed it. And that is that I really love collaboration. Mm. It doesn't mean I'm always an extrovert. It is just affirmed for me that whether I always need to be in the room with someone is not the point. It's just that things are better when I collaborate. And that's going to be a a North Star for choices that I continue to make, I think, Mm. for sure. I think I agree with Lynn in in multiple ways. One, I already knew I didn't need an affirmation or a confirmation about collaboration. I think other people just make everything better. I've been thinking about how in positing advice, part of what you're doing is you're challenging somebody to move beyond where they are currently. They might be stuck or stymied or confused. You're, You're helping to encourage them to take action in some way. And part of that is taking your lens, your values, your experiences and identity, channeling that into something constructive. How do you, if at all, empathize, but then also perhaps at times push back against and even maybe reject the perspective or the question that's coming your way? In terms of giving advice being sometimes less about the specific advice itself and more about the process that we go through and that we are encouraging the letter writer to go through to examine what's around them, interrogate what's true, what's not, ask questions and confirm your interrogations, right? So there's, it's more about the process. And so I do think that there is space for a difference of of opinion but there isn't space for someone to deny someone else's humanity. And so that is where I would draw the line and do that close reading of the text in the letter and answering someone's request for advice. Hannah, there's a real legacy that 
people have latched onto this bundle of letters that appeared in Yiddish, in print, was something tactile that you could latch onto, hold and turn and read aloud in a public space. It has a legacy. What do you see as building upon that legacy and creating a new legacy of its own? How is the podcast part of this history of the forward? And how is it even perhaps changing what the forward is, means, stands for, envisions as being Jewish in America today? In a way, this is a natural iteration of 124 years of forward doing the bintel, but now this is the first time in a, a digital iteration. This type of thing where a question is coming in and an answer is going out and it's all mutable because it's digital. This is not like on the 10th floor of the forward building, they're going to set the type for this answer. And that answer is going to be around a century later when I have to find it. It's not like that. It's mutable. It's changeable. And that's part of our culture today. So I think that's my answer for like how it looks different today. But, you know, there is this element of a Jewish advice, let's say, giver, right? Or, you know, there are other ethnic pieces, of course, but let's say this particular one, right? And knowing that, you know, we are also considered the people of Freud and the people of the Talmud and the writing of the American Jewish literature. I think all of that informs this at this particular point in time. And I think the other thing is that those forces of who we are, you know, today is not something that you have to keep behind a curtain of some sort, including different political identities. And so in those bundle of letters, yes, I may find stuff about politics and political affiliations, but there is this kind of push towards a particular belief and something they felt was very important for the forward reading masses to absorb, right? What are the questions that are on your minds now? Just kind of thinking about the world today as Jews, as citizens of the world, as leftists, as people who are just trying to cope and survive and thrive in the 21st century, what questions do you want to put out there into the universe to kind of linger and have us meditate on? I think three critical questions keep me up at night. For the Jewish community, particularly in the United States, North America, how we talk about Israel and Palestine in the Jewish community in the United States, we, just like the rest of the country, have been in the midst of a racial reckoning. How are we going to continue to make the progress we've started this past year? both in our own community and how will we as Jews use the influence and the power and the agency that we have at this unprecedented moment in Jewish history in the United States? Are we, how are we going to use it to advance racial justice both inside the community and out? And then on a macro level, climate change. And now I'm really actually feeling like we need to start thinking about how we live in a place that we won't have forever. And so, yes, we need to do the things to stem the tide of climate change, but also we need to do some things about how we live for the foreseeable future, which I don't think is as far into the future as we would like. Hannah. You know what? Really, just take every single letter that was ever written to the Bintel Brief and roll it in a ball. And I'm kept up at night <laughs> by the same stuff they were. I mean, even though my conditions in life can't compare way better than my grandparents had, way better than my dad had. The fact that an advice column 
is embedded within a media organization is to me kind of the answer because maybe you're not going to write the personal essay. Maybe you don't agree with what's in the editorial column. Maybe you hate our headline, but there's always something in that advice column. It's going to get you in the heart. I mean, it is what they were saying. You know, in 26, when they wrote that article, thrilling to the fact of their bintel was so popular at that point in time, they said, right now, when a plane flies overhead in New York, Everybody opens their window to look out at this phenomenon. And they said, and that's how it is with the Bintel Brief. There is this thing that just grabs us, right? So that, that's how I see it. I'm so moved by this iteration. I, I'm really uh, thrilled. And I'm an archivist. I'm a person who's like, I would love that we were still stamping out stuff with metal type, okay? Like, true. <laughs> but <laughs> this, is, this is exciting for me. I've also been grabbed by it. the Bintel Brief came on my radar a few years ago. And it's meeting a lot of, you know, my own needs as uh, a member of the Jewish community, particularly for helping to see it in more pluralistic terms, to see it as something that is dynamic and vibrant. For me, being Jewish kind of meant, you know, two things. One, not being Catholic, so I was defined mm. as what I was not. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not Catholic. I'm not going to do what you're all doing on Sunday. And two, it meant being defined as somebody who had a history of victimhood and persecution. You know, go to school and when do you encounter Jews? We're going to study anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. Right. Leave school. Everybody's going to CCD and I'm not. That's what it means to be Jewish. And it was defined in terms that weren't affirming of anything or anybody And to come of age and to encounter Mizrahi identity, Sephardi identity, to talk to people who are teaching their children Ladino in the 21st century, to be able to hear somebody wax poetic about the vitality of Jewish life in Tehran for century upon century, and to know that it's not just Fiddler on the Roof on repeat really just means the world to me. And the fact that all of you in your Mm. own different ways are bringing in this kind of mosaic of perspectives is really affirming. A special thanks to Gina Green, Lynn Harris, and Hannah Pollock. It was a real treat talking to all of you. If you're interested in learning more about A Bintel Brief, the podcast, visit the Forward's website at forward.com. Thanks to Lauren Purcell for helping me get in touch with The Bintel Bunch. Without you, this conversation wouldn't have happened. At the top of the episode, we heard from Adam Strom, Shira Diener, and Stacey Rosenthal. Adam is the director of Reimagining Migration, an education nonprofit that focuses on difference of identities, backgrounds, and perspectives through the study of migration. You can learn more about Reimagining Migration at reimaginingmigration.org. Shira is the head of school at Boston's Jewish Community Day School. Learn more about the school at jcdsboston.org. Stacy is a program associate on the Jewish education team at the education nonprofit Facing History and Ourselves. Learn more about their work at facinghistory.org. Thanks as always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joy and Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. 
To learn more about Alex's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And to learn more about his music, visit alechutson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazara. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform choice and visiting our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. Beshufiku. We'll see you next time.